Welcome to The Crux. Each week, two of the world's top communicators take you behind the scenes of the news of the day to explore the crux of communications that are shaping business, politics, and our daily lives. Hi, this is Gary Sheffer of Boston University and Weber Shanwick. And hi, I'm Mike Fernandez of Boston University and Llorente Cuenca. Welcome back to The Crux. So we have a real special treat for listeners this week. Alex, oh, yeah, I'm excited. Yeah, Alex Gibney, the Oscar-winning documentary maker, is our guest this week. And and please stick around uh, to listen to this interview. He's funny, he's smart, and he's the best there is out there. Um, he's got the new HBO documentary on Theranos and Elizabeth Holmes and really one of the amazing business stories of our time. Um, and so uh, he's just, he's fantastic. He spends a lot of time with Mike and I. But before we, we get to that, I just want to talk about the golden, what seems like the golden age of documentaries, at least the, in an article I read recently by NPR, they're calling it that. And and there are so many uh, documentaries recently that have had incredible impact on all the things that we talk about on the crux, economies, people, reputations. I'm thinking, Mike, leaving Neverland about Michael Jackson yeah. and the two guys who yeah. accused him of molestation, R. Kelly. Um, that actually led to, uh, I believe, some charges. I forget the name of that. But you can even go back to uh, Blackfish, the, uh, the yeah. documentary on SeaWorld and uh, the the impact it had on the reputation and, and ultimately the operation uh, of that. And the, the last one I want to mention is, Every time I bring this up in my class, every head pops up, and the students are so excited to talk about the fire festival. I believe one was on Netflix, one was yeah. on Hulu about the this yeah. high they were end. Great, I saw both of them. Yeah, high end concert that never happened, and uh, that really brings into question some of the folks who were involved in promoting that at agencies and and some of the influencers they used to uh, essentially rip people off. So just an amazing time for documentaries. Why, why do you think that's happening, Mike? Well, you know, I, I think that we we all have this thirst for authenticity, and there's this great drive for transparency. And, you know, and sometimes, you know, the, you know, the truth is, is, is stranger and more interesting uh, <laughs> than fiction. Right. Uh, you know, sad to say, but, I, I mean, you know, it's, it, it's one of those things. Um, but, you know, I, 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 I get warm, fuzzy feelings, actually, when I think about documentaries. I, I'm probably weird in that way. Uh, but I remember as a kid, you know, watching Jacques Cousteau's uh, World Without Sun, uh, where he explores, you know, the world under underwater, right, and uh, and and also points to some of the challenges uh, environmentally, uh, and 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 that I was probably like eight years old when that thing came out, uh, but I remember uh, vividly, you know, his descriptions and what he was able to share. So I think it's I, I think it's the ability of that camera lens. To capture what we know as that it's real, um, that it's powerful, and that there are things afoot uh, that can tell uh, or, or, or that share a story in a very interesting way. So I think it's it's a combination of being up close, and it's that notion of really good, impactful storytelling, and you know, fact 
fact sometimes is uh, yes. more powerful than fiction. Yeah, and I, I think you're absolutely right. And, and um, Alex, um, I, I think, has a good perspective on that, and we'll hear from we'll hear that in a minute. I, I also think, you know, I think the documentaries people are seeking truth and answers in a time of confusion, complexity, deception, you name it. Um, and I think that sense of clarity you get from some of these documentaries um, is is really extraordinary. And, and, and oh, I'm, I'm watching the Fire Festival, and I have to tell you, those, those two, I was like physically sweating. <laughs> you know, it was so <laughs> uncomfortable. Well, well you know, it, it really impacts kind of what we do and what right. people we know do. And you wonder, you know, so does this bad apple essentially uh, mess things up for the future of our profession? Right. So, 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 so I think that's part of, of, of why that feels the pain. I know you must have also felt some pain for something that Alex actually worked on, which was uh, sort, of, sort of the, uh, uh, the frocking, if you will, of <laughs> one of your heroes in terms of Lance Armstrong. Right, and that, that, uh, his uh, documentary called The Lie um, is about um, the lie, the big lie that Armstrong told, yeah. that he was clean, and then the many little lies that he told to, to people around him in, in what was, in many ways, a very mendacious, you know, sort of campaign. And same thing. I just, it, yeah. I felt like I'd yeah. been punched in the stomach after after yeah. watching that, Mike. Yeah. But, you know, from a business perspective, what's also interesting about this phenomenon, I think it, I think it arises for a couple of reasons, right? Right? There are many more channels, uh, both online and on cable than yes. ever before. So, so they want content, and and this becomes content that sometimes is less expensive to produce than a, a feature-length fictional movie. Right. Um, and then you also have uh, the you know a lot of us are intoxicated by uh, reality television yes. in various forms, and so that plays into this. But what's neat about this is it's done with a cinematographer's eye and with the journalist's urge to get the real story. Tell the truth, yes. Yes, well, one of the things I have to say, too, here at Boston University, not only you mentioned documentaries in, in classrooms, and Fire Festival ultimately you know, um, comes up, but I'm really encouraged by the fact that students have seen things like RBG, which is... Ruth Bader yeah. Ginsburg's uh, documentary, and which was actually uplifting too. Yes, I mean, so, so, so you can go to the other side. It's all—it's not all about bad news. Yes, and they're doing well. You know, at the as you say, less to produce, cost less to produce. Doing relatively well at the the box. I think of Free Solo, the the guy who climbed Yosemite without ropes or nets. Uh, I, I haven't seen it. I hate heights, and I'd be laying on the floor of the theater talking about you know <laughs> if I had to see that one. But you know, I I also love that like. A few years ago, it was 20 feet from stardom. Oh, yes. And it had these these background singers uh, that had inspired this film uh, and kind of about their careers and what was it like to be a part of, you know, multiple magic moments in, in recording history, and yet we don't really know their name. Right. But through that, through the art of, of, of a documentary... Uh, we learn a little bit about their lives and what 
you know, what prompts them to do what they right. do. I, I'm, I'm totally a Pips man. Gladys Knight and the Pips. I, <laughs> I don't know one we'll of their have names. To test that out someday. Exactly. Yeah. They. It's so. Hey, and you're right. You know, the there are a couple ones uh, do- documentaries coming up that I really want to see or out there. Showtime's doing something called the Fourth Estate, which is in the New York Times uh, newsroom uh, uh, on the first twelve months of covering Trump. That should be interesting. Wow. And, yeah, I, I got to see that one. And and then I, you know, I'm also a big NASA space program fan, and they've got Apollo 11, which I think is out in IMAX theaters now, and they got access to a lot of um, legacy footage that hasn't been seen before. And I imagine in an IMAX theater, that is going to be extraordinary. So that's what I'm looking forward to, uh, a couple of documentaries I'm, I'm going to try to see once we get on break here at, at BU. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm lo- looking forward to our interview uh, today. Here yes, with yeah. So let, we'll stop talking, and uh, you're about to hear from one of the best documentarians ever, and uh, a winner of a Lifetime Achievement Award from the folks here at the College of Communication at BU, Alex Gibney. So let, let, let's go to that uh, now. Thanks, Mike. Thank you. Our guest on The Crux this week, Alex Gibney, is someone who was once referred to by Esquire magazine as becoming the most important documentarian of our time. His documentaries have tackled a wide array of subjects, from Enron to WikiLeaks, the Church of Scientology, Washington corruption, the clerical sex scandal in the Catholic Church, the rise and fall of New York Governor Elliot Spitzer, and the torture of an Afghan taxi driver by American soldiers. He's won an Oscar, he's won several Emmys, and been nominated for many others. He is with us today in that he is this year's recipient of Boston University's Hugo Shang Award for Lifetime Achievement in Communication, which has been previously conferred by the BU College of Communication here on journalists and communicators whose careers have made a special mark on the world. So Alex, welcome and thank you for joining us on The Crux. Thanks guys. Hey, and congratulations on uh, the recognition here at BU. Uh, I I have a lot of questions. Uh, I'm a huge cycling fan, by the way. Um, Alex, so I'm gonna, you know, the lie changed my life and so I'll I'll ask you some questions about that later, your documentary on Lance Armstrong. But first I just, why don't we start with, you know, how does someone become a documentarian uh, was it what was your journey like was it in any way inspired by your father's work as a journalist etc how did you get into this it, it was somewhat inspired by my dad who was a who was a print journalist he wanted me to go into the family business as he saw <laughs> which would have been print journalists and you know he was all set after I got out of college to uh, you know get me interviews at time and at Newsweek which is where he had done a lot of his work but I, in the college, I caught the, the, the bug of cinema. You know, I, I would go to these film societies every night, and sometimes it would be docs, sometimes it would be, um, you know, fiction films. Uh, and they were all wildly um, explosive and interesting mm-hmm. and, and, and dynamic. So I got that bug. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a filmmaker. And over time, I've come to say that I've become a, at least in my documentaries, a filmmaker with 
<laughs> journalistic baggage. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great way to put it. Yeah. You know, one of the things I've always been impressed from the world of journalism and watching writers is that ability to kind of crystallize a bigger idea through telling of a single powerful story. And oftentimes that's what you've done as you've approached some of these docu documentaries. I know I was blown away when I saw Taxi to the Dark Side, uh, which does this so incredibly well. Um, but creatively, how do you, how does that process work? Uh, how do you decide that this is the this is the story that's going to tell the larger one. I mean, that's a good question, and and I think the the question even before that is, what is the story? Yeah. To tell the larger tale, you know, because I'm you know a lot of people come to me and say you should do a film about this issue or that issue, um, but I'm not always convinced that um, their suggestions, while very important, sometimes provocative in terms of public policy would necessarily make good movies. For that, you, I, I think you need a good story. Um, and so in the case of Taxi the Dark Side, for example, that was a rare case where somebody came to me and said, uh, you know, I'd like to raise some money for you to do a film about torture. First of all, you know, it was hard to imagine anybody <laughs> was going to watch a film about torture. And second of all, you know, how do you do that? How do you, how do you make a film about a subject? So I, I went looking for a story, and it was finding the story of Dilawar, that, that made me convinced that I could do it. And Dilawar is an important story, not only because he was a pure innocent, this mm -hmm. Afghan taxi driver from a small little village called Yakubi near, near, near Host in Afghanistan, but the story of what happened to him took you through the torture system, um, through Bagram Air Force Base in uh, Afghanistan to Abu Ghraib in Iraq, Guantanamo, you know, in Cuba, and then, of course, to Washington, D.C. And, and by following his case, um, you know, you can, you can come to some reckoning of how the United States put in place a, a, a sort of system of torture. But it's, it, at its heart, it's a murder mystery. Right. Hmm. Fascinating. That's interesting. Well, uh, yeah. Now, didn't you, somebody told me that you actually interviewed your father in that documentary, too. What, what was that like? I did, and he actually demanded to be interviewed. You know, he had been in, <laughs> which is, how do you refuse dad? Yes, but, exactly. But he, he had been a naval interrogator in World War II. He, uh, he interrogated um, Japanese prisoners of war in Okinawa, as a matter of fact. Um, and uh, he did it the old-fashioned way, that is to say rapport building. You know, he wasn't slapping people around mm -hmm. or, or water, even though that's what the Japanese did. Um, but he was infuriated by what Rumsfeld, Cheney et al. had done um, to the rule of law and American values. And so he wanted to talk about it. At the time, he was very ill. He was dying. And he uh -huh. was on an oxygen machine. And, and so he said, look, get your camera and uh, let's talk. And so I got, I had a little, you know, very much of a amateur, I, I guess it was a, you know, a DV cam at the time. Uh, there was nobody else there with me. I was at home. I mean, I was at his house in Santa Barbara, California. So we, we stopped the oxygen machine for a brief period. Wow. And, and I shot him talking. And he was very impassioned. And for a long time, I wasn't sure I would put it in the film. Um, you know, I, I, 
in my earlier film Enron, you know, it was objectively narrated by Peter Coyote, did a great mm-hmm. job. And this film, too, was supposed to be, you know, the big report on torture. I, and, and I wasn't sure that my own personal, I, I should in, interject my own right. um, story or, or the story of my dad. But I played the tape for folks in the cutting room, and they said, no, no, we, we've got to find a way to put it in. So, so we did. And, and in so doing, I then decided not to go and, and, and hire an actor to read the words that I was writing in terms of the narration that I would do it myself. And so I rewrote it to, 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 to sort of more accorded with my voice. And, and that began a process of starting to narrate some of my films because uh, not because I think I'm a good narrator, but just because I'm the one who's writing it, so why shouldn't I speak it? it yeah, just well, it, it gives us a sense of authenticity that you don't necessarily see in these. And, of course, it, it worked out very well for you in the sense that Taxi to the Dark Side actually won the Academy Award for Best Documentary Feature. Yeah, we busted all of the uh, uh, the Oscar pools that year. I don't think that. <laughs> Well, so like um, uh, that documentary and, and others, you're challenging authority in many cases, the status quo. And you certainly, you know, go into some of these, I would think, Alex, with a point of view about your subject um, after you've determined what the story is. But have you ever, in the middle of doing a film, have you ever been surprised that's caused you to question your own point of view and change sort of the direction you're heading uh, based on this new information? Often. In fact, usually. Okay. And, and, and sometimes not entirely, but I mean, I went into, um, I mean, the classic example is The Armstrong Lie. Yeah. You know, that's, that's in, in some ways, is a film about me being fooled. Right. Uh, and I have to reckon with the fact that, that Lance was probably using me as a PR tool and, and that I had become a willing participant in that, in that narrative and, and had to, uh, up, upend it and also right. reckon my own role, my own unwitting role as his kind of um, scribe. Uh, and uh, I think WikiLeaks, you know, We Steal Secrets, I went in thinking it was going to be a praise poem to Julian Assange. And, and really the first 30 minutes is close to that. But uh, I found out some very disturbing things about him and also discovered that too much of the story was focused on him and not mm-hmm. nearly enough right. was focused on Chelsea Manning. Uh, at the time, Bradley Manning, um, who was the whistleblower, after all, and WikiLeaks was just a publisher, uh, and 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 so the the film ended up being not just about Julian, but about Julian and Chelsea Manning. And now we're beginning to see, you know, even in the indictment um, by the Department of Justice, uh, you know, the some of the. the, the problems with that relationship. Yes. Yeah. Well, kind so of building you... on that idea. I know that uh, I'm, I'm fascinated with this documentary, documentarian's point of view, um, but we now have, you have your, your latest uh, uh, effort uh, out there on HBO, The Inventor, Out for Blood in Silicon Valley, this is the story of Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos. Uh, you explore something more than the events that took place and a set of facts. It's as though you were providing us kind of a study in the psychology of fraud. In fact, you even uh, employ a behavioral economist uh, to educate us about what might be going through 
her head, what might be going through the minds of, of people in and around what's happening at Theranos. What prompted you to take that vantage point? Um, you know, I felt that this was a story I had seen before in some ways. I had done other stories about fraud. Enron was one. Um, but I was, you know, this wasn't, this didn't have the most dramatic or cataclysmic consequences, luckily. I mean, I think, you know, she did put people's lives at risk, but nobody died. And, and, and the company was not a public company. So, you know, a lot of rich people lost their money. Uh, but, but it didn't have the kind of dramatic economic consequences that Enron did. But I, I was really interested in this idea of how she could fool so many people, so many very sophisticated people, uh, and, and also how she may have fooled herself in order to be able to uh, fool others. You know, that was the thing that was interesting to me about Lance Armstrong. Uh, you know, he was a very convincing liar, and I think he was a convincing liar because he believed that the end justified the means. Mm-hmm. To stand up on the podium, um, and because he had, he was raising so much money for cancer survivors, he could say, you know, how dare you say that I, as a cancer survivor, would ever use performance-enhancing drugs? Because the cancer survivors were invested in the idea of the story that he was clean. Um, but he would then get down off the podium or the or the the speaking platform and go do a bag of blood. So. <laughs> He knew he was telling a lie, but I think in the moment he didn't. Um, he believed that he was telling a kind of truth, and I think, in a way, that's where Elizabeth was coming from, which is why she was such an effective pitch person, or you could put it another way, why she was such an effective liar, because she believed in her mission so devoutly that she was able to give it a give the lies a kind of conviction that was almost as if she was telling the truth. Wow. Well, she certainly fooled a lot of people. You know, she was the darling of Silicon Valley and news media, business media. I think of the folks on CNBC were quite taken by her. And and John Carreyou at the Wall Street Journal sort of broke through all that, writing the first stories. And I believe John won a Pulitzer for that, if I'm he, not mistaken. No, he didn't. He didn't. I, I, he should have. He should have. Wow. Yeah, he should have. Yeah, and his book, uh, his book is so good. Uh, it's, it's really good. It's like a thriller. If you haven't read it, uh, I recommend it. But when did you say this is a story worth diving into? I mean, early on, it was it was pitched to me by Richard Plepler, who had been fool, uh, who was the head of HBO, who had been fooled by Elizabeth, as 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 had been Graydon Carter. Um, but you know, it, it was also a story that was. I've done these kinds of stories, and so you know, it was um, it was intriguing to me. Um, because I, I, I sense a certain familiarity. And there was one other thing, I, you know, you, you guys were mentioning earlier in terms of the psychology of fraud. The other aspect of it that I found interesting is that I didn't want to see Elizabeth Holmes as a kind of a freak or as a, as a mm-hmm. purely bad apple. I wanted to see her as a, sim, uh, as a symptom of, uh, of some other problems. You know, one was the kind of the Silicon Valley notion of fake it till you make it, which I trace back to actually Thomas Edison. Um, <laughs> you know, and in that sense... I was also getting at the heart of something about capitalism. You know, we like to think that capitalism is a, you know, is a series of, of, of rational equations of risk and reward. But it's, it's really a pretty, uh, 
it's a system that's really based on the gut. I mean, as I say in the film, you know, credit is derived from the Latin term credo, which means I believe. Mm -hmm. And there's all talk about confidence. You know, when do people lose confidence in the economy? Like in 2008, it was just, well, we all lost confidence in the economy. And if you think about it, well, the economy is so rational. What, what does a confidence have anything to do with anything? Right. You know, but it turns out to be a kind of confidence game. So that aspect of, of business, I, I, I think, hadn't really been looked at. And, and this seemed to be an opportunity to do it. Well, you know, the, the other thing that is kind of interesting to me is kind of when the lawyers jump into uh, all of this. And so you're doing this documentary. Uh, John Kerry Ruitt, the Wall Street Journal, is digging in. Uh, perhaps other journalists are starting to wise up. They hear you are doing a documentary. Um, and the folks at Theranos get all lawyered up. Uh, we know from the documentary they hired David Boies, the famed lawyer with uh, many notable cases. Did, did this slow you up? Did it complicate the storytelling? Did you have to lawyer up yourself? Uh, did it spark any thought about what you really have here? Yeah, I mean, look, uh, we knew part of David Boyce's role in the story when we started. And of course, in terms of lawyering up, I mean, luckily I had as my partner, HBO, and they had been with me in the war, uh, in the film about Scientology I did called Going Clear. Um, and so they were they were skilled <laughs> in kind of legal Would combat. have to be, yes. But, but uh, practically speaking, it was tremendously difficult because of the prevalence of these NDAs and because uh, David Boyce was using those NDAs and his legal power to try to enforce silence from people. Um, it was very difficult to get people to talk to us. They were they were terrified that they were going to be sued into oblivion by David Boyce. So it, it presented all sorts of practical challenges. Wow. Can I just jump out of that story for a minute, although we want to come back to it, Alex, is uh, we live in sort of the golden age of documentaries. Um, you know, I, I was doing some research this morning, and I, I see the documentary R, RBG about Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Free Solo, and they've become th cinematic successes in a relative sense, you know, $20 million or so. And then you can just go down the list on the, on the, the things that have been on Netflix and other uh, platforms. Um, why so much interest right now in documentaries? Well, you know, I think we've always been interested in real life, and nonfiction books, you know, have occupied a, a very important place in um, the public sphere for a long time. But I think a couple things happened. One is the, with the introduction of reality television, people, that is to say audiences, got used to the idea that you could be entertained by um, films without actors. And I also think that filmmakers in the past 15, 20 years have really upped their game, have become kind of master storytellers, uh, and learned how to tell these nonfiction tales, which are far more idiosyncratic and, <laughs> um, and, and, um, and, and, and have more twists and turns in very dramatic ways um, than sometimes what can feel like um, 
sort of formulaic fictions. I'm, right. I'm not saying they're all about yeah. that, but, yeah. but they yeah, feel but like it sort of follows that, you know, truth is stranger than fiction, right? Right. So the, so the storytelling skills have, have uh, really evolved powerfully, and audiences have learned to come to them. So over time, they're turning on to them, and, and, and they've become very noisy as a result. Uh, you know, HBO itself, you know, in this winter, you know, one after another, there was the case of Adnan Syed coming out of Serial. There was that mm-hmm. two parts on Michael Jackson's accusers. And leaving and Neverland, was, yeah. yeah. And then there was um, uh, The Inventor. Uh, and they all did hugely well. Millions of people saw them. So uh, they, they did better than, than many of their dramas. Well, I think yeah. it gets... Are there documentary, do, other documentarians that you admire? Sure. I mean, uh, you know, there's one who's actually in Theranos who who, who really um, got me interested in doing docs, which is Errol Morris. Um, I think that, um, uh, you know, the Maisels brothers were here. I was a big admirer of them. They, they did very, films very different from mine. And I was also a big admirer of a guy named Marcel Ophel. Um, you know, who was a, 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 did a very famous film called The Sorrow and the Pity about the French Resistance. Uh, he had one of my favorite, you guys were talking about point of view earlier. He, has, he, had one, he has one of my favorite quips about that. He said, you know, I always have a point of view. The, the trick is showing how hard it is to come to that point of view. <laughs> yeah, very nice, very nice. Well, you know, and, and thinking about it, I mean, Looking at your subjects, as you've done many documentaries through the years, uh, you know, in Theranos and Enron, you dealt with fraudulent business. In the in Casino Jack, uh, about Jack Abramoff, um, and then El- the Elliot Spitzer one, Client 9, and then Taxi to the Dark Side, you dealt with the deception of politics. But when you decided to take on religion, and you did it twice, first with the Roman Catholic Church, and then Scientology, but particularly with the Catholic Church in uh, Mea Maxima Culpa, were you ever concerned that you might be poking the bear? Um, you know, this, this story, by the way, for, for those who've not seen it, is of four young deaf boys who, as adults, are claiming abuse by a Catholic priest uh, that they would meet in the confessional. Yes. And, and, and I, I certainly was aware, and, and, and particularly because, you know, one of the reasons I was interested in that particular story, in, in addition to be able to inhabit the deaf world, which was interesting to me, but they were ultimately suing the Pope. They were going after big game. Right. And they were trying to, um, you know, follow the trail of crime right on up to the top of the Vatican. And that idea was very interesting to me because I think the great crime of sex, clerical sex abuse in the Catholic Church is not the idea that there are predators. Predators are, are, are awful, but very, very often they're uh, disturbed uh, men, in the case of the Catholic Church, who, who almost can't help themselves. Um, the, the real crime is the way that the Church as an institution enabled those men and protected them. Um, and that was something that was... Uh, powerful uh, but I knew there was going to be heavy blowback and I did get it I mean uh, I, I have a massive cache of emails directly <laughs> um, Alex from the people va- were pounding, 
pounding me for for you know channeling Satan and so forth. <laughs> did, did you get any feedback? No, nobody conducted any exorcisms. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm sure they would have liked to have done so. Just curious, did the Vatican respond directly to you in any way? The or? Vatican didn't respond directly, though I, I should say two, two weeks after um, uh, the film aired on HBO, Benedict resigned. So, oh, right, uh, right. That's right. I can, I can try to at least imagine that I can take some small credit for that. So, so this may be a question, Alex, that um, you don't feel qualified to answer. But, you know, Mike and I, we've been in big companies, worked in communications and PR um, for some big global brands. And uh, some of these and more and more of these documentaries that we see, I, I go all the way back to Blackfish, you know, the SeaWorld uh, sure. a documentary that really hurt their reputation, supersized me, Mike reminds me, really forced McDonald's to change how its menu and, and what it offered to its customers. So we teach here at BU, we teach students about public relations and crisis management. If, if someone's doing a documentary on your company, what's the strategy you would recommend to them? Full engagement, Caution, uh, someone you respected like you who, you know, has a track record that um, not just someone out of the blue. What's the best strategy for dealing with a documentarian if you're in communications? Well, the best strategy is a difficult thing to identify because you'd almost have to identify what is best. If best means, you know, put a put a clamp on it, um, there's different ways of doing that. Right. To me, I think the best strategy, and, and it was suggested, you know, I did an episode, we have a series called Dirty Money, and I did an episode on Volkswagen. Right. And somebody suggested that, you know, what Volkswagen should really do in order to get the trust of consumers back is to just open up their archives to somebody like me. I mm -hmm. actually heard that on the radio. <laughs> <laughs> and and it, it did inspire me to do the film, but they never opened up their archives. And most companies wouldn't think of it. Um, because they would regard it as a breach of their fiduciary responsibility to protect the interests of shareholders. Right. But from my perspective, in terms of a larger social good, uh, I think it's absolutely what should be done. You know, I think people are coming around to this idea that uh, companies can't just be financial abstractions designed to transmit um, uh, money to, to shareholders. They, they should be stakeholder companies. That is to say, um, investing also in the well-being of their employees and hopefully making products that benefit consumers. So, you know, in that context, if you have a scandal or a crisis, yeah, open it up. Right. Because uh, if you, that's the best way of, of really coming clean, but few people ever engage that strategy. It's usually... Um, divert, delay, deflect, uh, <laughs> deflect, acknowledge some small, um, you know. Can you think of an instance where somebody did open up? No. Can you? No, I, I, I was trying to go through my head. No, I can't. Uh, I, I mean, I, I've seen it in other ways, but not necessarily with a documentary. I mean, very often what they do, what some companies will do is they will hire a legal, you know, they will hire a law firm conduct a thoroughgoing review. That's what Enron did. That's what a lot of companies do. But they they often, 
you know, know how to pick the law firm, and they find out some things, but it's never exposed in a way, and, and they, get a, they get an advanced copy of the report. So <laughs> it, it never, it, it's not really that kind of sunlight thing that, that, uh, that, that Justice Brandeis was talking about. Right, it, right. They're, they're, they're too afraid, but it's, it's a little bit what I think about when it comes to the Catholic Church. You know, Benedict has this problem, which is how can he protect the Catholic Church even as he tries to clean it up? And it's a vexing moral problem because the right moral thing to do would be to open up the archives and say, here, look, let's get it all out in the open. Mm-hmm. Let's see who the parties are, and let's see how many, how many crimes were covered up. But he doesn't dare do that because if he did, you know, people might leave the church and never come back. Um, but the sad but thing is they're not, leaving anyway. They're leaving anyway. But by not doing it, um, you know, he talk about moral hazard. I mean, yeah. and that's moral hazard for a religious institution that's all that's supposed to be entirely invested in, 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 in a higher morality. So it's really, um, it, it's not a pretty picture. You know, you, you'd hope that as um, uh, a Franciscan, you know, he would be prepared um, to, for the church to go bankrupt right. uh, in order to be able to save its soul. Well, that's yeah. why so many people are so disappointed in the actions they've taken, let alone uh, the, uh, the, or the lack of actions. So, Mike, you want to wrap it up? I, Alex, this has been great. We could talk yeah, to you yeah. all, all, what, all day. What I'm really interested in is, is you, you talked about at one point when we were talking about uh, uh, what had happened with Theranos, and you, you suggested that part of what you were doing is kind of shining a light on how people think in uh, Silicon Valley. I, I'd be really interested in getting a window onto you know, what's next for you? Is there a next documentary? And could Silicon Valley perhaps be one of those targets? I've done a couple films now on Silicon Valley. I did one on Steve Jobs mm-hmm. and I did Theranos. And there's probably more coming in the future, but I'm, I'm, I'm veering in a slightly different direction, uh, though I, I'm, I'm – it, it, it's the crime of the century is what I'm interested in right now, but I'm not at liberty to say what that is. <laughs> There's a lot of things. We love we... the tease. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of things that fall under that category. So that title, yeah, we could, that's terrific. Well, listen, Alex, thank you very much. I just have to say, come back to, to lie about uh, Lance Armstrong. I was a huge Armstrong fan. I believed in him. Yeah. Sure. Uh, I, uh, I believed him. You're right. He was a great liar. Um, I'm a cyclist myself. And that documentary was so devastating for me personally uh, that it's hard to see your heroes knocked off the pedestal. And, um, and it, it was just so expertly done. And the way um, that you, you pivoted and transitioned in that um, uh, from also believing his story uh, yourself in some ways, I thought was just extraordinary. So, uh, well, yeah, thank you. I mean, it's, it, it, that was a, a really interesting tale. And, you know, to some extent, Lance Armstrong was certainly correct in saying or suggesting that, you know, he was certainly not the only one doping. Right. I, I ultimately zeroed in on the lie because he 
kept promoting a bigger and bigger and bigger lie when other people who had won and doped, like, say, Miguel Indoran and mm-hmm. others, you know, just kept their heads down uh, and didn't raise them above the parapet. Um, but he needed to establish that, that fiction that was just fake. Right. Um, and, 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 and really morally bankrupt because it affected so many people, particularly right. con- cancer survivors and other cyclists who felt, you know, that they were um, participating in something pure, exactly. which wasn't that at all. It was cruel. Alex, too, to the yeah. people around him. A very cruel Indeed, man. yeah, and the way he prosecuted that line went after people who were trying to upend it, like the Betsy Andreos exactly. of the world. Well, listen, this has been great. We really uh, appreciate you coming on. Congratulations on your award here from BU. Well-deserved. And thanks for coming on The Crux. Great pleasure. Thanks, guys. Take care, Alex. Take care. Thanks for listening to The Crux, and make sure to listen for our next episode. Follow us at The Crux on Facebook and on Twitter, and you can find our episodes on SoundCloud and on our website, thecruxpodcast.org.